James voice. Welcome. I could do the radio voice. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I'm your host. No, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm making fun of James, the normal host of Simply Stogies. I am just the mere co-host of the show. Then I've only been the co-host for this past uh, eight months or so. Uh, but this is my first show that James could not be with us tonight. So I have the pleasure and honor and the privilege of interviewing an old, old, for me, old, you know, industry wise, not quite 20 years, but I've known you since long time, a long time. Uh, Pete Johnson, Pete Johnson of Tatawahe. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I think this is your second time on the show. You've done it actually before. A while back. Was it during the pandemic? I don't know. I wasn't part of the show back then, but I know that James told me that, oh, yeah, we had Pete on before. I'm like, yeah. good. Yeah, I'll tell you, Nick, you, you, uh, you're like the disappearing host, though, because your backdrop doesn't allow you to move around, so your fedora right, turns can, into a baseball cap every once I can, in a while. I can, I can take it off. I could take it off. I, I could take it off, but now we're already recording, so I'm not going to do it. So we're just going to pretend. We're just let me see. Hold on. We're, if I move in, we're like just going to pretend. We're just going to pretend that I'm here all the time. This is part of my look, the fedora look. Um, like I was telling Pete before, it, it, it's not bad for business. It makes me look more the part. Now, speaking go. of looking the part, Pete, I don't look the part. I, I got to tell you. Um, for you being my first host, uh, first host assignment, um, is so easy because I've known you forever. I followed your career forever. Um, we've bonded over many, many things over the years. The first thing being, uh, our initial love of Cuban cigars. I know yeah. initially your palate was very Cuban. You loved Cuban cigars. We talked about trips that you've mm -hmm. made there. Uh, I obviously go there a few times or I've been there a few times. And so we started with that. I happen to play the bass, not at your level, at a professional level. And we'll get into your whole history. Uh, so we have that, we got watches, we got, and of course the main thing, which is why we're all in this business is because we love the fading in and out of the cigars. <laughs> um, so uh, let's start at the beginning. You, you tell the story, man. I could tell your story, but we're here to hear from you. Tell us. Well, what, I, was a, uh, I was a musician. I moved to uh, Hollywood, California, or Los Angeles, California, when I was uh, 18 years old. I actually went from out. from Maine, right? I'm from, from Maine. Maine. I'm from Maine. I went out on a, a uh, post-high school trip with a couple buddies of mine. Uh, didn't have much money, but we had enough to go out for two weeks, which if you look back on it, like, I don't know how we survived two weeks with, with no money, right. but we went out for a vacation and I came back. I said, I have to move here. Like I absolutely, like I absolutely have to move here. And I saved up a bunch of money. I did graphic arts. So I did like, I ran printing presses. So for nice. like the whole summer and into the fall, I ran a college print house and ran their printing presses printing, you know, tests and all this other stuff on big AB Dick's uh, 360s and uh, saved a bunch of money and flew back out to Los Angeles. And within about a month or two, I found a band that happened to be out of San Diego that was going on a small tour. 
and ultimately they were the band that I joined and and uh, played with for my whole career of playing music uh, in L.A. And we were almost famous. We didn't get quite there. We actually broke up before we actually became super, super duper. We had, we had a challenge. Our lawyers and management were great, but our lawyers called us in for a special meeting and said, uh, we have to drop you. <laughs> and we're and we're like what? And they're like, yeah. Well, we just signed a band that you guys sound too much alike. You know, you sound too much like them, and it's kind of a conflict for us because we we have to focus on this band, and you guys are too similar. And it was Stone Temple Pilots. No so, shit. Yeah. So well, we if you got to take ended, a back seat to somebody, that's a good band. I mean, yeah, an amazing band, amazing yeah. band. But we ended up getting another great set of lawyers. Uh, they wanted a rock band and. Uh, they because they were doing like uh, Tiffany, you know the the mall girl right, right. Tiffany, yeah, yeah. and this uh, this uh, pan flute guy, the Yanni, Y A N N I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what he played exactly, but uh, wait, it was the like Greek, the early the days Greek? of Kenny G. I think so. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I think I know him. Yeah. So ultimately, we broke up. We had a schedule from our our management, like you can't do this, you can't do this. And then by this date, you're going to be signed to one of these record labels. And it was about a month before that date came up that our singer came into band practice and said, uh, I don't want to scream for a living anymore. And uh, we went our separate ways. I ultimately went on to play in a group with this guy named Randy Castillo, who was the drummer for Ozzy Osbourne, and this kid named uh, John Lowry, who ended up becoming John Five, who is... uh, now Motley Crue's guitar player, oh, but he was uh, Marilyn Manson's guitar player and then Rob Zombie's guitar player. Amazing musician, but ultimately not like when I met him years later, he, he was kind of a dick. So mm. <laughs> uh, not a fan. I, you know, the music business is very finicky. Like I ultimately got very soured by it mm. and I was happy to find this other world uh, called the cigar business because everybody that I first met when I first got my job, my first job in a cigar store, everybody was super cool. Every manufacturer that walked through the door was super nice. I could call people like Paul Gamarian on the phone and talk to them about, you know, how we're doing in business. It was a very personal thing. I used to have long, you know, 30 minute conversations with George Padron when I was younger. And at the end of the conversation, he would ask me like, you, you need any product? I'm like, well, if you want to send me something, go ahead. Because, yeah. you know, like I was, I just wanted to pick their brains and, and learn more about the industry. And that's really how it all started for me because I, but was your dream Pete? Like, I mean, you came to LA, but was your first dream to be a successful musician for the rest of your life? Is that what you envisioned initially? Oh yeah. 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 I, I had that dream of being on stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people and, and uh, or thousands of people. And, um, you know, as I get older, though, I became more introverted. Like, I like doing these conversations because it's more one on one. I'm not yeah. standing in front of a few thousand people oh, having to do it. Sorry, sorry, Pete. <laughs> I, I, as the first time, you have to forgive me as a host because I totally screwed up and did not introduce uh, my uh, backup. <laughs> And co-host today, 
people know him. His name is Tim Allen of uh, Simply Stogie's fame, not uh, Home Improvement fame. He is the host of the After Show, and I should have invited him and introduced him on the show. Please, Tim, say hello and join the conversation. I am so sorry. I totally forgot to. You're you're all right. I was just going to let you roll with it. I was like, "Eh, whatever. (laughs) It is Tim Allen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a guy there. I forgot about him. Sorry. But without the Sorry about that. uh, I did actually (laughs) look up, uh, Pete, last time you were on Simply Stogie's uh, episode number 18. So if you're listening and want to check that out, uh, jump back in the Wayback Machine. When was that? Uh, December 15th, 2019. Okay. So yeah. right right before the pandemic. Yep. Wow. <laughs> we're, uh-huh. the, we're the ones that caused it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pre-pandemic. Yeah. Pre-pandemic. So no, good. we'll get back to your story. You, you, you moved out to LA and yeah. you found this whole other little, little thing that you got a, a hobby initially you were interested in. You were meeting all the cool people. Uh, continue. Yeah, I mean, um, well, you know, it was my dream to be a rock star. It was my dream to be on stage. And then, you know, I kind of got soured by the music industry. And I I was working kind of a dead-end job. And this guy that worked at the cigar store I was frequenting came in and offered me a a Sunday job. And I I literally just fell in love. I loved the culture anyways. But then when I got in the mix of working behind a counter – then I, I really went down the, the rabbit hole and mm. just started studying stuff and learning stuff. And I never expected to have my own cigar brand, but in the mid nineties, uh, one of my guitar players in the band who I'm still best friends with these guys. Um, his dad was like a QVC guy. He, like he was that, that guy you would see in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, buy this paint roller plus and the red devil grill and stuff like that. And, uh, he knew I was in the cigar business. He wanted me to help him make a brand because he thought it was a good business to get into. And I took a trip to the Dominican Republic in in the mid nineties and I knew everybody, but I got back from that trip realizing I didn't know enough about the business side of distribution and manufacturing and, and maybe the little bit of politics on that side. I was just a kid in a candy store thinking that, hey, yeah, I'll just go make a cigar. And then I realized, okay, it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I waited. But uh, ultimately, you know, I I got to a point in my life that I, I figured, okay, that dream is gone. That's not going to happen either. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was about, what was it, uh, almost – seven years to that date that uh, I met uh, this guy named Papin Garcia and that, that reinvigorated my dream. So. But before that, uh, first I got to ask you, just maybe some people want to know, when did you get your first tattoo? I got my first tattoo when I was 18 by this tattoo artist named Bob Vessels uh, who worked at uh Mark Mahoney's shop. Mark Mahoney's a pretty famous tattoo artist. And Bob Vessels was one of his uh, protégés, I guess, or students in the sense at that time. Right. Eventually, I think Bob became very big. Uh, but it was Marvin the Martian. It's right here, and it's still there. Right. And then eventually, I met this guy by the name of Freddie Negretti, who uh, was this 
really amazing freehand tattoo artist. Like he would scribble on your arm and then just go off with the tattoo gun. And he eventually became like a superstar in the tattoo world. He tattoos like all these, like, you know, Justin Bieber and, and uh, the guy from, from uh, Maroon five and all these people. So, you know, he got too big for, for me to, to get tattoos from him anymore. I had to start looking elsewhere. His his prices probably went up. Uh, His prices went up, but like when I, the last time I called him, which was many, many years ago, I asked him to to sit down and he goes, I don't have any time, but my son can, can work on you. His son was super (laughs) talented. Unfortunately, his son actually passed away. I'm not sure how, but, Mm. uh, but yeah, Freddie, Freddie still has one of those names. There, there were for the longest time, there were people in this, in the tattoo business that wouldn't touch my arm because Freddie did the work. Like they, they Mm. out of respect for him. They're like, no, yeah. Uh, I won't touch it. Okay. I was like, I want to finish it. It's like not done. Like just someone. So there's, there's a lot of my arm that's unfinished. Mm, wow. So you got in the business before you even really got in the business, uh, you know, you were kind of known as tattoo Pete people. I know you've mentioned in the past people like Carlito and all the, the classic, you know, the, 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 the godfathers of this industry knew you as tattoo Pete. And yeah, that was a nickname the they gave me. Right. That was a nickname they gave me because of one one Boston Big Smoke in, I think it was 1995. I had met Carlito earlier on, and I thought he was one of the, the nicest people. And he really was like one of those people that I really respected and also appreciated that he took the time to to talk to a kid that wanted to pick his brain and ask questions. And... Uh, I thought the whole family was great. I met Cynthia. I met Wayne Suarez, Cynthia's ex-husband. Well, now ex-husband, but back then was her husband. Right. And uh, I went to a tattoo artist, a friend of mine. I said, um, I need you to put this on my my arm. And I got an open sex tattoo on the back of my arm. And it's still there. It's right next to Marvin the Martian, but on the backside. And... uh, when everybody saw it, they kind of freaked out. I went to the big smoke, showed everybody, I have a problem with my arm and I showed them the logo. <laughs> and then I started getting requests from other manufacturers to tattoo their logo on my arm. <laughs> but I did it out of respect, you know, as a, as a thank you to the family for, for being so generous to me. So they called me tattoo Pete. It was Robbie Levin, uh, Carlito, Wayne Suarez and Carlos senior that, that gave me the nickname. So everywhere I went, it was like, oh, it's Tattoo Pete. Well, not only is it an amazing brand, I honestly, to this day, I still think it's the nicest logo brand in the business. It's just something very elegant and regal about that brand. And I've always been in love with it, you know? So I, uh, yeah, I, I have to go back to the tattoo thing real quick, just because yeah. when I would go to the trade show, my first trade show was in 1995. No one had tattoos visible people had tattoos right but not showing and i and my luggage uh one year got lost so i actually walked into the trade show wearing a t-shirt and everybody saw the tattoos you know early (laughs) on i tried to dress the part and have my sleeves down and everything and then one day i realized i didn't have to do it but uh yeah I'm, i'm very fortunate that i had great mentors because it it carried with me into this day 
and I'm, I'm very, uh, very pleased that I had good well, people the, to teach me. That's the one thing I love about being in this business and being a part of it is because, it, I mean, it's all, you know, we're all competitors, if you want to call it that. But I tell you, it's such a friendly uh, family style business in the sense that everybody knows one another. And, and you know, we're all in it for the common bonding of what this magical leaf does. And I think it's just... I always said it's something magical and, and I'm, I'm proud to consider myself a part of this business. And, and you, my friend, I agree. you are in so many ways, the Godfather, not in most ways, you, you are the guy that kind of paved the way for a lot of the boutique industry in general. You're kind of credited officially, unofficially, your name, your name is always comes up when it comes to boutique brands and, and all that. You are the first name that comes to mind for most people. Well, in this industry. There are, there are many people way, way before me. I mean, like you think about untraditional cigar well, makers, Rocky Patel comes to mind, you know, Rocky uh, Patel was one of them. Tony Berhani. Yeah. Remember sure. the brand Bahia. Yeah. Yeah, he he was around way before I started the brand. I mean, there were a lot of people. I think I probably just stick out because of the tattoos. Um, oh, whatever works, man. And and now there's know, at least a dozen you, people. Oh, you know, maybe more. Yeah, <laughs> maybe more. It's a dime yeah. a dozen, right? Yeah. But I have to give you a great analogy. You said we we're not competitors, and I agree. But I never went to a college. That was I. I went from high school to the streets of LA. Um, the Sunset Strip was my college. But I, you know, like, even in my band, or even a fraternity, like my bandmates were, like we were a small baby fraternity, essentially. Right. We were all brothers, but we all wanted to outdo each other. Yeah. So we all have this competitive nature, no matter what. But we sit in a room together and we can have a drink and smoke a cigar and, and shoot the shit and laugh our asses off, but maybe walk out the door and go, I'm going to do something that blows him away. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, why not? So your first cigar, you, 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 uh, you know, there's a whole chapter uh, that we kind of went over, but let's get to Pepin. Uh, Jose Don Pepin Garcia uh, you make a very fateful meeting with this man um, and you ask him to make a cigar for you. And yep. initially you didn't like what he was giving you and you, you got one of your, your Cuban sticks out of your personal stash and you said, make something like this. Yep. And he said, oh, that's easy. You know, being he's straight from Cuba, you know, and uh, he made your first stick and, then the the brown label tatuaje was born and give us the give us the whole rundown with that yeah i mean that was that was it i mean the first the first few cigars i didn't like and then i took out that cuban cigar and gave it to him we both smoked it and through translation because i right. couldn't speak spanish <laughs> right how's um, your spanish now by the way it's got to be pretty good right pretty decent not great yeah. but pretty decent i use a lot of first person stuff <laughs> yeah i'm the same way but, Let's uh, say I got a first grade, uh, you know, Spanish. But. <laughs> I might have, I might have, I would listen. I flunked Spanish in high school four times. So I'm better than that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. It Eventually through translation, I, he asked me, he goes, you want this? I go, yeah, I want that. Like, uh, can you roll me that? And he took the same tobaccos and just bunched them differently <laughs> and put different 
and different, you know, component, you know, ratios of the components in. Right. And we made this very simple, classic, you know, classic Cuban blending, straightforward cigar. And I go, that's what I needed. That's what I'm looking for. I don't want craziness. I mean, I have some craziness now, but I still want like old world classic flavors. I said this recently, someone asked me in London, I said, I don't want, I don't want to make new world cigars. I want to make old world cigars. And to me, old world is where the history comes from. And that's, that's what exactly what I want to do. I want to try to outdo the Cubans. I don't want to try to outdo my, my bandmates or my, my fraternity brothers. Yeah. Well, everything was modeled at least back then. Uh, you know, that was the Mecca. That's where it started. And until Nicaragua and the Dominican came into their own and, now look what's ha- what's happening, and with with the Cuban prices, it's only helped you know the the New World cigars just oh, yeah. blow blow up, blow up. You know, uh, for, it's definitely helped. It's definitely helped for a lot of uh, quote unquote New World cigars uh, to get noticed because even international clients are looking for other options because their yeah. customer base is just kind of raising their hand to like, I don't want to spend $500 on a Cohiba. Yeah. Even 200 pounds on a Cohiba. They, they well, want to spend, you know, 30, 40 bucks. You know, a hundred dollars is about the average now, especially in the UK and, and uh, parts of Europe. I mean, a hundred dollars for a cigar is kind of like the median price. I mean, it's hard to get yeah. anything less than that. You know, I still found a nice Juan Lopez number two in in France for, 14 euro you know france, that was decent. france they have their their pricing structure is crazy over there because the margin they work on is so small that yeah, i don't it, know why anybody would want to seven or 11 percent yeah, yeah some- it's like the distributors allowed to make like seven percent and then the retailers allowed to make another eight percent it comes to like yeah. total i was looking at i'm like why do these people do this it's like you know you can't build usually business, they, so. they get their their money off the cigarette business that's it. Yeah. Or yeah. the other stuff they're selling in the shop. Um, yeah. And in France, having any business in France is very difficult. Having employees in France, ah, let's not talk about that. But <laughs> um, <laughs> so back in the day, I remember you had said, we're talking 10 years ago, you were you were at about 3 million cigars. Yeah, I, I've, I've kept it. Uh, that's worldwide. I've, I've kept it pretty close to that. Uh, I think we're probably maybe pushing 3.5, but, uh, and again, that's worldwide. Right. I don't, I don't really try to stress myself with, with producing too much. I, I prefer to prefer to, uh, just be happy and, sure. uh, make a comfortable living and make a comfortable amount of cigars that, that a small team can distribute and not have the headaches like some of these bigger companies. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would I would guess it might be three and a half, uh, but I, I haven't really pushed it too far. So people that may not know, you know, Don Pepin right now, of course, you know, he's one of the top uh, guys, uh, families. Uh, they're the new the new era, so to speak. But I've always known. I don't know if you're going to agree with it. To me, you. I mean, I'm not saying he wouldn't have been discovered on his own, maybe, but you're the one who really brought him to light. You know, he made his first cigars really for you. Uh, well, yeah. And, 
he he would have been discovered. Um, yeah. I was one of the few people that took a chance on him early. Right, um, right. So maybe I have a little bit of, you know, pat myself on the back for, for just being loyal and, and paying attention to something. I, I just wanted to work with someone that, that kind of knew my palate and knew how to produce a cigar for my palate. I want to ask you an interesting question that I just actually popped into my head. You've said many times and everyone knows your loyalty to the Pepin family. Now, of course, you're a part of that family, and we'll talk about that as well. But you always said you wouldn't want anybody else to ever make your cigars. Let me ask you a very hypothetical question. If yeah. you had to have another factory, I'm just from my own curiosity, make cigars for you, who would you look at? Who would you want to make your cigars? Who do you think has your palate, your, where you wanted to be with cigars? And I know it's, it's hypothetical only, but it just like, yeah, I'm not asking tough. you for a second for because obviously there's so many different and every factory has a signature and kind of style. Anybody you would think of? Yeah. I mean, honestly, if, if I had to pick, let's say being in the family, we're out of the mix completely. Let's do right. that. The hypothetical. Yeah. Let me, let me at least have that. They're, they're right. no longer here. That's what I, of course. I would probably love to work with Lito Gomez. Because I I've known Lito for a long time, I think he's doing great things, um, and I think he really cares about every stick he makes. And you know I've seen a lot of factories over the years where I see like where the potential is gone. There was a guy in the Dominican Republic that I thought was really good way back when, and I recommended him to a lot of people, and he still makes great cigars. But I see just Lido at this at this point right now. That um, I think he, he's amazing at what he's doing. Um, obviously, you know, if he asked me this, you know, twenty five years ago, I would have said Puente. <laughs> right, right, of course. Yeah. But I, I know that I would be the guy on the back of the the back of the list to get anything. So, and I have to yeah. apologize. It's pouring rain, but I'm luckily undercover, so you might hear some background noise. But it sounds like bird chirping now. <laughs> What's that? I said it's not a hundred degrees out right now, though, right? Because that's that's why I'm uh, out in my garage, and if for three days straight, hundred degrees, sixty plus percent humidity, you can't go outside for a second without sweating. Tim, where are you? Uh, I'm in Iowa. Uh, Jake oh wow! Yeah. Both in Iowa, so we're flat yeah. over country. Yes, for sure. Yeah, that's a. Uh... It, it's, it gets pretty sticky out here, but uh, it's, it's kind of like my smoking corner. Mm -hmm. well, if you watch any podcast with me, I'm always here. <laughs> I'm in New with Jersey. With a guitar in the background. I was going to see. I, I see the guitars, yeah, for sure. Those are guitars, not basses, right? You, you play I have both? a couple guitars uh, and one bass. I have uh, four guitars and one bass in, in that room. All what my bass basses, it's a Duesenberg. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My buddy, uh, actually, I have five guitars in there and and one bass, but my other basses are in Los Angeles. Hmm. Um, I left them out there just in case I had to play a gig. No kidding. <laughs> just the random. <laughs> I, I, own, I own one bass myself. It's my favorite. I don't play it much, but I have it in the room. I have it on the stand. I have the uh, the Rickenbacker. You know, the four hundred one. Oh, love that bass. Such uh, a the beautiful Rick, the, Rick, the Rick sound. Yeah. And, Just yeah. uh, you know, the first thing you think of when you see a Rick and Barker, you think of Lemmy. Yeah. 
Yeah, Motorhead. I mean, I love a Rickenbacker. I never owned one, but I've always, I've always loved them. Maybe one day yeah. I'll, I'll buy one just as a goof, just to have it. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't, I, I actually was into Rush, and Ooh. even though Getty Lee, you know, he's signed with Yamaha and he does all, you know, the signatures, but he, he used to play that that black and white Rick. And, uh, mm-hmm. I was like, I loved, I loved rush. And, and uh, there's a lot of guys that play Rick and Bockers. I mean, the Beatles, you know, guitars, they were playing Rick's back in the day. And, and, you know, it's an American company based in California and they still produce yeah. and they're, and they're hard to get and they seem to retain their value. And, uh, I, I love the base. It's something. It's a great, me, great brand. Yeah. So getting back, Oh, I'm in New Jersey, by the way, nobody asked, but you know, where, whereabouts in Jersey. I'm at this exact moment. I don't know if you've ever been here. You know the Metropolitan uh, Cigar Society in North Jersey. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, but where I in North Jersey? I'm at the Metropolitan Cigar Lounge oh, right now. There you go. That's that's my home away from home. I I I got into cigars in the early '90s and the Metro Club. I was one of the first people in there in the '90s and. Years later, then I moved to Florida for 20 plus years uh, and 22, actually. And now I'm back in Jersey. I like to say temporarily because I'd like to make my way back to Florida. I came back for various reasons I don't want to get into right now, but I'm kind of stuck here right now. But yeah, I'm making the most of it right now. I can tolerate it. Uh, the winter months is a little harder, but thankfully, travel schedule allows me to go to warmer weather when I need to be. Absolutely. So, uh, but I do love Florida. There's something about Florida. So let's get back to your cigars, Pete. So yeah. you start making great cigars with the Pepines. Um, one of the things that people, everybody knows about is your monster series. Can you tell everybody about your whole concept, how you got into it and how it's become such a cultural thing for the tobacco world here? Uh, well, it, it was interesting because when I started the monster series, it all started from a conversation I had at a place called Gloucester Street Cigars in Boston. No longer there. It was on Gloucester Street right off of Newberry. And uh, one of the owners, Jose, was uh, telling me that I should do a theme cigar. I had already done some limited edition cigars, right. but he asked me to do a theme cigar. Now it's getting loud if, it, if you hear that. Um and I was trying to rack my brain about what I thought about doing this thing called rivals, which I never did was going to be based off of like famous sports rivals. And I wasn't obviously going to use the, the sports teams names, but I was going to use their colorways right, right. and have them be like side by side on a shelf next to each other, like green and white and purple and gold next to each other, that type of thing. Right. Never did it. And eventually someone came up with a brand called rival. So of course I, wasn't able to do that anymore. But uh, he kept on pushing the whole theme thing. And he was a big sneakerhead. And he had his whole sneaker collection in the store because he couldn't take it home for his wife to see because she would kill him. Hmm. And he pulled out a pair of Nike Frankensteins. Hmm. And at the time, there was a T-shirt company uh, in Boston and in LA called Johnny Cupcakes. And Johnny Cupcakes looked like a bakery where you go get cupcakes, but it was a t-shirt store. And they did these crazy limited edition t-shirts where you, you would have to literally, if you wanted one of their limited edition t-shirts, you had to stand 
like on the sidewalk of Newberry Street for like days to get one of these, you know, one of 50 t-shirts. Hmm. So that kind of inspired the whole concept of, you know, a special edition. But um, as soon as I saw the Frankenstein sneaker, I was like, oh, monsters. And within like, I don't know, about 30 minutes or so, I had already thought about the packaging, the quantities that I was going to make, the quantity per box. And I kind of mapped out the first like seven or eight monsters. Mm. And I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And of course, you know, I don't call it Frankenstein. I call it the Frank because I don't want to get sued by anybody. I, I never use the full name of the the actual character because I, I want to make sure I, I tread lightly with trademarks. Right. And uh, ever since so uh, the, the floor the Yeah. <laughs> right. The Frank, the Drac, you know, the face, you know, uh, the mummy, the mummy's easy because it's kind of public domain. So it really not, is, I think Frankenstein is public domain too. I believe it is. I think even yeah. the images, but the, uh, I've always been really careful about how much of an image I show too, because I obviously I'm very cautious of that because I've been through legal <laughs> disputes before and, and always get caught with your hand behind your back, not thinking you don't think about it when you're doing it. Uh, but luckily I learned a lot of great lessons from it, but yeah, it, that was it. And uh, the first year we made them, Obviously, we, we, we saved a bunch for ourselves, but we made 666 boxes. We shipped 13 retailers, 50 boxes each, and I kept the leftovers. And then I remember talking to people in, like, New Jersey and New York, and some guys were getting, like, eight boxes. They're like, hey, you're on to something. This is going to be a collectible thing. Like I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It seems kind of a to be a pain in the ass already. And then by the time we got into the next year, like I realized I didn't even make enough and I had made a thousand boxes and it wasn't enough. So by the time my third year happened, which was the phase, I ended up having to make like 3000 boxes. It might've been like 2,500, but it kept on growing. And now I cap it every year to uh, about 4,000 boxes and, and be done with it. It depends on the monster, obviously, because right. now I'm in my Redux series, so I'm redoing all the 13 again. Right. So it really depends on the monsters and knowing the popularity of each monster from the first time I sold them. I'm very cautious about, like, okay, do I really need to make 5,000 or 4,000? Now, I'll make 4,000 for this one because it wasn't as popular the first time, so I want them to be limited. I want them to be, you know, in the store for a day and gone type of thing. Right, right. I didn't expect it to be one of these things that people chase after. I didn't expect, you know, the original Franks to start selling for a hundred dollars a cigar mm. um, in the secondary market, but yeah, it that, ended up being a part of what Tatawai is. And that's what Ultimately, I would say is that the, the monster series, like you almost need to know somebody to be able to get your hands on those cigars because they're gone. They hit the shelf. They're gone. They hide forever. And then they come out on the secondary market for ridiculous prices. At least what I consider ridiculous. I'll be, I'll be pretty honest that, that if I, if I just had 
one day, like, no one wanted to buy Tatuai, but they all still wanted Monsters. The Monster brand as a whole is still a big brand within the portfolio. Mm-hmm. So I could I could do very well just selling Monsters, but obviously I want to have a portfolio showing expressions of tobacco. And, you know, most of the Monsters are on the heavier side. Some are medium, but... I don't want to be known as that one trick pony guy. I, I want to show people that there is, you know, a portfolio and not just a brand. I mean, I yes. want to have mild, medium, heavy cigars. I want to have a price point for every wallet. I want to have a seat for every app. You know, that type of thing. So Pete, you've had some other side projects that you've done and some other passions that you've explored some that have gone on for decades plus primarily I'm talking about your wine, you know, um, love well, the of wine, wines, the wine. I, I've loved wine since. Okay. So my early days at this place called Gus's smoke shop, right. uh, which was my first job. If you ever watched Seinfeld and they would show a cigar store, that was Gus's smoke shop. That was in Studio City, California. It was not in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, next door to Gus's Smoke Shop was a French restaurant called Mistral. And I would go next door to have lunch or even dinner after work. And I'd sit at the bar and the bartender would teach me about French wine. So I, I got into this vibe of like going to, you know, even Trader Joe's and finding like experimenting with wine. To the point where I'd start buying different varietals and mixing them together to see if I could make blends out of oh. the same. Like, if you think about one brand that happened to have like two different red varietals, I would take those yeah. two bottles and and play Mad Scientist mm. just to try it. So I was always I got into it really early, and uh, when there was a moment that I, I always had this dream of like I'd love to test my blending skills by making my own wine, but I don't own a vineyard. I don't uh, live in France. I don't live in Napa. I almost moved to Paso Robles before I, before I started the cigar company mm. uh, because I wanted to do wine. And uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine in, in Washington, D.C. He goes, I'm doing my own wine. I go, what do you mean you're doing your own wine? He goes, there's a place in France that helps guys like us that want to do their own wine and I immediately contacted this person over in France and I flew over as like the first chance I had. And I went into a, a, chat, a small chateau in San Emilion and I started playing mad scientist and it was awesome. I did it for five vintages only. I did, uh, 2010 all the way up to 2014. And then I had one, two, five different wines. Well, no, yeah, five different wines. And um, ultimately, you know, it was just like, I got a lot of wine and I'm not doing anything with it. I mean, it, it was never supposed to be a business. Everybody thought I was leaving the cigar business to do the wine business. I was like, I don't have enough money to do the wine business. But the reality is like, you, you have to, to make a million dollars in the wine business, you have to start with 10 yeah. and lose nine. So, um, yeah, I, it was never supposed to be a business. So I ended up having this wine building up and I'm like, 
I think I have enough wine to last me for the rest of my life. And I just decided to, to stop doing it. And plus travel got harder. And, and, uh, ultimately like I was going over to the San Leon two times a year to sit in a room and, and test the blends to make sure everything was right. But ultimately it's the Chateau that was doing all the work. And it's a very famous Chateau that, that owns this company that helps people like me it's called Lynch Vage. Hmm. Um, and there was this guy named Steven Bolger. He doesn't work with them anymore because he retired, but he's the one that, that kind of like envisioned this whole thing. And I, I thought it was an awesome thing to be part of. And I thought I made some really cool wine and we enjoy it with friends and family. But you're not going to the trade show every year. No, I never tried to sell it. Oh, so you never actually put it on the market. No, no, it wasn't oh. for that. Okay. I, I, I actually offered a few bottles to my club members here and there, right. but it was never supposed to be like on the shelf anywhere. I Did I, I probably had dreams of, of working with a, like a legitimate distributor in the United States to like bring in the wine and put on the shelf. But, but honestly, I, that wasn't my focus. The focus has always been the cigars. Gotcha. So, what about uh, your brother? When did you bring him into the business? I brought him in in 2012. Okay. Um, in 2000, I think I was like 2010, I brought him to Nicaragua. And then 2011, I brought him to Nicaragua again. And in 2011, that's when I had him, a buddy of mine uh, who goes by Casper, his name's Sean Johnson, but no relation. And our buddy, Dan Welsh, they were all there. And we started talking about something that I, I saw a wrapper leaf that Pepin had. And he goes, you like it? I go, I know exactly what I want to do with it. And that's where Atelier came from. Because, mm -hmm. but I knew I didn't want to put Atelier under Tatuaje. So I decided that it was, it was good to bring in some friends. And I was already making Dan a cigar for his store. And I said, let's roll the surrogate brand into this new Atelier company and then do Atelier and let's do a, a couple bundle projects, you know, inexpensive premium bundles. And uh, ultimately, you know, we did that. We, we started that in 2012. They, they, I kind of let them do their own thing, but I was kind of like the, the lead singer of that band. Gotcha. Because Dan always gives a great analogy. He says, Tantua is the solo act and Atelier was the band and I was the lead singer. Gotcha. Even though, the you know, it's funny because normally the lead guitarist is the one that writes all the music. So I should have been the lead guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, um, we had, a, we have a, a great time working on it, but it was in 2017 Casper actually got offered a big job with uh, UMG, mm. universal music. Yeah. Uh, because that's what he used to do. He used to be in the music industry and he, he goes, I can't pass this up. And he went back to working in music. And once that happened, I kind of rolled Atelier, all the Atelier products into top Y. So now it's just top Y with everything underneath it, gotcha. but we still treat them kind of like their own brands. Surrogates is a very different brand. It's a, it's a project based thing where every cigar is different. Um, so it's you can't go into that line and go, oh, I like this one. I must like that one also. No, you, you, they're all different. 
You, yeah. you can't find two that mimic each other. And uh, Atelier, it's very streamlined, very simple, very classic. Uh, you know, of course, I went straight after the size in Mbihike because I was already making a five and, and five eighths by 54 in, in the Kabai Wan line. Right. So when Bahike came out with their three different sizes, I said, and I saw that wrapper Pafine had, I go, right. I'm just going to do Bahike. Or that, not a, obviously not the blend, but the sizes. Right, the sizes, the three sizes. So if you look at the sizes in all the Atelier uh, segments, you'll right. see the same sizes in, in like the La Mission, which is a box press version of, with San Andreas wrapper, or the Selection Special, which is the, the darker wrapper of the, the original line. So we try to keep a very strict theme with Atelier. So let me ask you another thing. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Right before you yeah. came on, uh, Tim and I were talking, and Tim told me, you know, yeah, you know, I knew Pete, so I, I, I Googled him. He goes, the thing that I thought was funny, he goes, when I Googled Pete Johnson, Tatuaje, one of, he goes, it must be very popular. It said, who is Pete Johnson's wife? Well, so, hold on. Hold on. Okay. On. So the reason why I Googled, and this, I, I literally Googled Pete Johnson Tatawahe, because I wanted to see what's been talked about lately. What have you? Yeah. And really, uh, Google and other search engines, not a whole lot out there since 2020. Yeah. Uh, so, but what I found interesting is within the top 10 hits, I would say probably six of them uh, mention your wife. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so, so I said to him, do you know who Pete Johnson's wife is? And he's like, no, huh. but it said something brand. What did they call her? Brand? Uh, Brangelina. Brangelina. Oh, yeah. They call, someone called us uh, Brangelina. Was it? Brangelina, Brangelina was Brad and Angelina, right? So uh, someone right. called us. Oh, someone yeah. called us the Brangelina of the cigar industry. Ah, uh, okay, because okay. uh, I hadn't heard that. But I see. I was for people like it was referring to Brad uh, Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Yeah, I thought uh, of a beautiful woman of the brand. That's how I. <laughs> oh no no no! Yeah, <laughs> yeah so they, they, people... they called us. Someone did an article and they called us the Brangelina of, of the cigar industry. So for people that have been under a rock and are not aware, you know, Pete's connection to the Garcia family now is he's literally a part of the family where you are married to Yanni Garcia, Pippin's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Since, so, uh, since 2019, but, uh, we're, we're, uh, an item, very bad secret for a long time before that. Yeah, very bad secret. <laughs> Oh yeah, that reminds me. We, of we tried to keep it a secret in the first few <laughs> years, but uh, uh, you know it was crazy. We would we would book separate hotel rooms because we'd always travel together for events. Right. But we would always have separate hotel rooms, and then one day I think her brother caught me coming out of his, her room. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah, but I mean I, I love this family. They're they're uh, you know it's it. 20 years being around this family, not every day is like the most perfect day, but ultimately they've always had my back. And, and honestly, I think they're happy that I'm the one that, that she chose. So, well, it, uh, it does work, you know, both in the cigar business. I mean, I, you know, I'm glad it worked out for you. I mean, that's, uh, there's the only thing I can say is, 
I might have made her angrier over the years. Angrier? That's usually she, how it works. She's literally like sitting 20, 20 feet away from me, <laughs> but through a uh, tempered glass so she can't hear me. <laughs> as far as you know, anyway. Well, she's, well, well it is recorded. Isn't I'm, it? Like not she the, be I'm not the easiest guy. Like, I'm very picky. Like, I've always been the family's biggest, like, pickiest client. Not their biggest client, but their pickiest client. Right. And even when I was back when I was younger and not selling my own brand and like in the mid nineties, I was taking Cuban cigars in tucked in between, you know, blankets coming out of Tijuana back up to the United States. Eventually I found a guy that was already bringing them into the States and he'll tell you to this day that I was his pickiest client because I would open up a hundred boxes and buy 20. <laughs> Wow. Like that's just how I am. Um, huh. But I, I think it's a good learning thing for them because they need to have someone to, to question. And I think it, it helps, you know, helps grow. I mean, they're already knowledgeable of what they do. I can't tell them how to process tobacco. I can't help, tell them how to roll a cigar, but I can definitely give them an opinion on whether or not something's tasting wrong or right. And, uh, I think it helped, it helped, you know, just strive to be better. And, you know, ultimately in 2006, they got a new client uh, by the name of uh, Robbie Levin, who owns Ashen Distributors. Um, and Ashen, of course, we know, you know, they've been working with Fuente forever. And they came to me and they said, what do you think? I go, whatever you do, don't, don't you know, don't fuck it up. I didn't not verbatim, but I, right. I said, I said, take, take this client super serious because they are a super serious client. And ultimately it will benefit you and it will benefit me because it will only validate the work that I did with you beforehand. And, um, I remember Pepin told me and the family told me that when they had their meeting with Ashton for the first time, Pepin told them straight up, it was like, I'll make you cigars, but if there ever comes a day, then I can only make one cigar. I'm going to make it for Pete. So that was cool. So that's why I've always been really loyal to the family. And it has, I mean, obviously I'm much more loyal to the family now that I'm married <laughs> to the family. <laughs> you got no choice, but you know, that was a very pivotal and very important uh, thing in their history is after oh, yeah. the Tatuai, that VSG that they did, it was well, like, they didn't that, do VS yeah, well, they, they didn't did do the, VSG. They didn't do they VSG. Did, they did uh, La Roma de Cuba, which is oh, called right. La Roma de Del Caribe in, the, in Europe, and right. San Cristobal. But that that was a big thing because Ashton was already popular with all the Ashton classics. Ashton VSG was huge yeah, for them. It was huge, yeah. And they didn't work with many people. So when and Robbie was a is a mentor of mine. Like right. I look I look up to Robbie, and he's still a great friend. And we sit on, I sit on the board of the CRA with him and his son, Safia. And, uh, you know, when they came in, I was like, you guys, you got to take these people super serious and like, don't like make sure every cigar is great. Like absolutely make sure every cigar is great because it's super important because they will carry you way further than I can carry you. And well, you ultimately you I, I get to ride on their caboose. This is go. great. You touched on something I wanted to talk about because I don't think a lot of people, I mean, everybody knows who you are, but 
I don't think a lot of people realize how involved you are, for instance, with the CRA. And, uh, you know, I mean, you've become, uh, um, you know, Coop likes to call you a statesman or whatever. You're definitely, <laughs> you're definitely a spokesman uh, in a lot of ways for this industry uh, in a very positive light. Um, talk about a little bit about your CRA involvement and are we going to well, get our money back for the, uh, for, uh, <laughs> that, that would be a great about. thing. Yeah. yeah, that would be a great thing. I think we, we still have to wait probably another, what, 45 days for, uh, right. for maybe if hopefully they don't appeal anything. Mm. Um, and then after that, maybe, maybe we'll move forward with something else. But, uh, I bet I was a founding sponsor of the CRA. I was involved since day one because I believed in the, in the, uh, the project. I believed in the the whole organization and I saw things coming up that we had to start dealing with. So I chipped in money the first time I ever had money to give. And that was in 2008 when they started and I've been a contributor ever since, but now for the last, uh, I want to say, I think it might be, wow, three or four years now I've been on the board Mm. and I'll tell you the last, the last four years has been tough. Because, you know, we've had to deal with, with a, an immense amount of legal bills. And, yeah. you know, ultimately, I get to see a lot of information. But uh, ultimately, I, I got bummed out when I saw the, the lack of involvement from a, a good majority of the cigar industry. So it was, it was disappointing, uh, but eye-opening. And I, I try to, like talk to as many people as possible to get people involved because we all kind of need to work together. And this is like the only time I like to say, let's everybody pay their fair share. Uh, like normally I wouldn't say that, but, but in this case, if you're doing a million dollars in business, I think you can afford something. If you're doing 2 million, you can afford a little bit more. If you're doing 3 million, you can do a little bit more. And that's how I look at it. it and that way it's fair to the, the big guys and, and even to my small company that, that chips in above my fair share because I, I believe in, in the process and I believe in the project and I, I believe in, you know, fighting for, for what we want to do as adults. And uh, we need a voice and the CRA was started as a consumer based voice. We didn't quite get as many consumers involved as we were hoping for because we really wanted to make it like the NRA of cigars. And uh, it ultimately became more of a manufacturer's voice because you have the PCA, which is the retailer's voice. And now they're starting to cross over a little bit and do more manufacturer stuff too. But the CRA has been in the front line when it comes to the manufacturers and they've been doing a lot of good work. And, you know, it's, it's not an easy sit down conversation every time we have a board meeting every, every month, but uh, I'll tell you, two weeks ago or whatever, a week and a half ago, 10 days ago, when we got that news, I was like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I was thrilled. I happened to be in, actually it was what a week and a half ago. I was in London when I got the message, having dinner with a friend of mine and I interrupted the whole dinner and I, I actually almost started to cry. I was so relieved. So happy to be part of the organization. I'm hoping that more and more people in the industry that are making money off the industry, uh, chip in whatever they can because it's important that we have a, a good a good solid bank account waiting for the next fight is the thought or the concept of the uh cigar industry's 
NRA still on the table, or has that just been completely pushed to the side? No, no, we we still believe in it. It's just, you know, like I I actually every year when I do my Saints and Sinners group that I have years ago, I kind of made it like a part of the part of the uh, membership. Like when you join Saints and Sinners, you're you're going to be a CRA member automatically. So last year, I think we had like 1,750 members that automatically had CRA memberships. Um, I would love to see 200,000 CRA, you know, consumer members that, that can sit there and, and send out emails when they see a, a state or federal tax coming through and they want to help fight it. Um, it's just not the reality. I think I'll be honest. I think early on the CRA did a very bad job. Um, we're still not doing a great job, but we're trying to do better at what we're doing. And uh, this win showed that we're doing better. And we've been able to manage to raise a lot of money through the CRA uh, freedom samplers that we do. So we actually have money to, you know, have lobbyists and have lawyers to get involved, uh, you know, to make sure that we can, we can continue to fight anything that comes at us. Because ultimately, that's that's really where the NRA wins is that they have a huge consumer base and they have a lot of a lot of money in their bank account waiting for you know a fight that's, to come up. That's for sure. sure, sure. And I can pull kind of a I, I'm going to try to channel my inner James here, uh, but I think what he would say because at one point in time, both James and I were uh, CRA ambassadors, and mm. he got frustrated. Uh, because of the lack of transparency and the lack of follow through, and I I'll would, agree. I'll agree completely. I would love. I'll to agree completely. Come back because I'd love to be a part of the organization, and I'd love to help fight for it. But if I'm not getting anything, if it's a one sided conversation, there's not much I can do. The, the the biggest thing that I said when I first joined the CRA is like that. There's no communication though. Like there, you need to be very open with the consumer base and the people that are actually chipping in money and helping the organization out. You need to tell people what's going on because if we just sit in a room and have a conversation, that doesn't help anything if we're not telling the rest of the world what needs to get done. And it, it, their, their biggest flaw has always been communication. And I, I think we're getting better at it. And I think you'll see a nice change over the next couple of years. Because we have a, a new interim uh, executive director, Mike Copperman, who is, uh, you know, super intelligent when it comes to, you know, the knowledge of, of what, you know, we deal with every day and the politics of this and, and also also the, the science on tobacco. Uh, sometimes he probably speaks a little bit above everybody else. And sometimes you say, Mike, dumb it down a little bit because, you know, few of us are C-plus students, maybe D-plus. And uh, I want to understand it more myself, but I think they're, they're trying to do better. But ultimately the CRA was working on a shoestring budget for years and they didn't, they didn't have any funds to do anything. So it was really, you know, begging people, Hey, do you mind doing this event for us? Because we, we don't even have the money to travel out to, to be there to do the event. So 
I'm hoping we see a good progress. I think that you'll see a, a nice progression over the next two years uh, uh, because forward. I don't want it to slow down. I look, like I said, I, I look forward to it, and I, I really do hope that there is a turnaround because, uh, you know, I, I joined, I was a member because I was like, ah, this is, I'm smoking cigars. I'm enjoying it. I want yeah. the I want the government out of my humidor. So yeah. this is where I need to be. But then it everybody wants to get something for their money and really yeah. a lot of people would be happy with communication. Yeah, absolutely. I said we need to do better with uh, even even social media, uh, email blasts telling people what's going on. We need uh, our executive director to get on more podcasts to talk to people like you guys. I, I know he's open to it. Yeah. You, I mean, it would be great for if you, if you could get Copperman on because he's kind of a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the industry and he's been around the industry using the retail, but he's really involved with the day to day of, of, of the politics part of it. And uh, he's working really hard to make the organization better. And, and with, you know, the fact that we actually have, money to to be able to do it it it's helpful but that money came from a lot of those freedom samplers those freedom samplers there's only 10 companies in those freedom samplers so you can realistically look at those 10 companies pretty much funded the whole cra there are other companies that pitch in here and there a little bit which i'm very thankful for because i've actually recruited a few companies to to you know write a check here and there um but you know, a brunt of it came from the people that donate the cigars for free to to actually sell these freedom samplers. So all that money goes into our legal bills. Oh wow! So, I, didn't, I didn't realize those cigars were donated by the manufacturers. Yeah, we we donate all those cigars. So the, the CRA has a bonus with me because every time I come in, I bring my wife. <laughs> she's and she's not even a board member. She's not a board member, but she contributes uh, as much, if not more. Um, but yeah, we, we believe in it and that money that comes off those packs. Yeah. It's all donated cigars and, and it, it helps the organization survive. And I think we're going in the right direction and, uh, I'm hoping cross fingers that, uh, you'll see a change because I want to see a change. I get frustrated all the time with it. Sure. I've seen since the PCA trade show, one of the things that I've seen both from the PCA and the CRA is the email communication, the email traffic that's going out. Yeah. uh, So much better, so much better than the past. A lot of people uh, would be frustrated by that, but it's email. Emails are free. Send them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, shit. Over 20 years of doing my own brand, I'm still learning how to, to run my own company. And, and we're, I'm not big on social media. I'm like, I, I have a presence, but I'm not out there every day. I don't, I don't want to be in front of the camera so much. Um, I like being behind it. And, uh, the reality is that, you know, like, like we just started sending out press releases. We never used to do that, but we send them out through MailChimp, you know, and, mm-hmm. but we never did press releases because my press release was, I'd post a picture of a cigar on Instagram and, the first person who called me would be like, yeah, you get to school. Yeah. yeah. So we used to do press releases and uh, we were never even close to being the first one to get it out. So by the time we would get it out, it's old news. 
Yeah. We didn't. I mean, eh, eh, there's a couple of guys that are doing a pretty good job at that right there, now. There's a couple you know, of guys that, that half that, wheel yeah, and half wheel, you know half wheel gets, you know, it's like, yeah. Oh, I'm like, yeah. how do you get that out so quick? It's like yeah. milliseconds. Yeah. yeah. He's, well, they pride themselves on that, you know. But really but do. it's not about being first. It's about being correct, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then there's always a retraction that they have to fix or they got something incorrect and they have to fix it. Um, you don't want to be the TMZ right. of cigars. You, you just <laughs> you, you want to you want to. Well, but even TMZ, everything they put out is pretty legit. You just want to be right every time. And um, that's why we want to make sure that when we send out these messages, we send out like there's no like I've actually retracted from from posting like new limited editions on social media until after we send the email blast. That way, all the podcasts and bloggers and, and news media can actually whoever wants to get it out can get it out. But, you know, there's some people that just, you know, they look at it. They, they put it off to the side and I'll get to that later. And it's always half wheel. Oh, always. So, but, but they're good at it. That, that's their thing. Yeah. Coops. That's funny. Like all good. these guys, I mean, Nick oh, yeah. knows all these guys have my, my cell phone number so they can text me and ask me what it is. And, and most of the time people are like, Hey, uh, I didn't get that email that I keep on seeing posts about. I'm like, well, check your spam because I sent it to you. <laughs> Pete, tell us about the PCA this year, last month. How was it for you? It was good. It was good. We we go into the PCA a little differently now. We we used to go in trying to show off every single SKU that we make, and it became like a logistical nightmare because we'd have to make sure we had all the boxes and all the you know cigars for every size on display, and and then decorating the booth. We're not really good with decorating our booth. So we, we go really simple. We show off what's new and we have a digital catalog. If everybody wants to see like what's old and most of the people that walk in the booth already know the brand, you know, there's a few newcomers here and there. I think most of the new people that are coming up to see us are international distributors looking yeah, for, exactly. for new products. But I get an email from the same country from 10 different companies. Like mm-hmm. I want to distribute your product. I'm like, I already, I think we already have one in Taiwan, <laughs> like right. shit like that. So it's like, I can't, you know, the international clients, I can't keep straight most of the time. I know the few main ones, but, uh, like I always have to ask Rosa that's in our office. Like who, who do we have in, in, uh, Bulgaria? I, I'm like, I don't even know. I sent her an email this morning because I got a new email from Bulgaria. I'm like, I think we have someone, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the show is good. The show is good. I mean, we always have a good time at the show. Um, we sold a lot of product. We did good numbers. We're still shipping, uh, which is good. We're having a good year again. We're up. Hopefully we can end up instead of ending, uh, down, which would suck because I don't know. I, I did have a big release at the end of October last year early November also. And, uh, that was such a big release that it might cut into, uh, into the percentage that we're up a, a lot. So, so I'm hoping to end the, the year in a good positive note, but ultimately we had such a great year last year. What am I going to complain about? Yeah. 
No, you, if for people that haven't seen, uh, we did an interview with Pete at the PCA and that's up on the website. It's on YouTube. You can watch that. And let's talk about your new stuff, Pete in the news. Very timely is, uh, the Tatuaje and smoke in your, your first, uh, NFT thing. You had an auction, you yeah. raised some money there. Yeah, Tell probably, probably, that. probably my first and last NFT. <laughs> this is, this is a collaboration between myself and Abe, the owner of Smoke Inn. Yeah. Because obviously I own the name Tatwai, but Abe owned the name Anarchy. And I had done an Anarchy, a couple of Anarchy cigars for him in the past. And he came to me with this idea after the Andalusian Bowl uh, or the Golden, I forgot, the Golden Bowl right. came out last year. And he says, I have to do this before, like, I have to make sure that I'm the next person to do this. And I have to make sure I at least try it before I die. That's kind of not verbatim. That's what he said. He goes, but I want to do it with anarchy. And I kind of looked at him and I said, I don't know, man. I don't understand the whole, the whole NFT thing. I feel like it's kind of like jumping the shark in a way. Yeah. And only people that watch Happy Days know what that means. But um, John he convinced Hunt. me. <laughs> yeah, he convinced me, and uh, and we we kind of struck a deal on how it was going to be formatted, and then he really led the charge on this. And I just I, I said, dude, just let me take care of the cigar, and and I'll make you a cool ass humidor for the cigars. Uh, but so I the winning, I don't the really understand this other stuff. Right? Yeah. Uh, for the first wow. NFT, there's there's a total of seven. Wow! But Abe, we decided that Abe would get number seven automatically because it's his brand, and right. rightfully he can't bid on something. It's not right. fair to everybody else. It would technically be illegal, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So he got he got the seventh number seven, and we're auctioning off one through six. The first one went for. $100,000, which I was blown away by. And then the second one currently is at uh, 59180 like Yeah, when I looked at it, it was like 30-something thousand. So it's Yeah, like and it closes tomorrow at noon. But the way these things work is that they carry over. Like as soon as someone... It's not like eBay. When you remember eBay, you would bid on something on eBay in the last it's still around, one dude. second. It's still there. I know, but <laughs> but like if you have you used it lately? I haven't. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> but you you could sit there and time your bid so to the last millisecond that you would put in a bid of the maximum you'd want to spend, and you'd probably tick it up a little bit, but at least you'd get it for you know in that last second. And the way these NFT auctions work with with this you know with this company called Eureka, if someone puts in a bid in the last minute, it adds ten minutes. Oh, so it gives wow. someone else ten minutes to to raise their paddle, oh. and then, and if it happens again, it it adds like an extra minute on top. I can't, I I couldn't track it exactly, but it, it lasted a whole hour and a half later. So mm -hmm. it went it went 49 hours and a half, 49 and a half hours even though it's supposed to be 48 hours because mm -hmm. the the second one was up at at noon it was supposed to the first one was ending at noon and the second one was starting at noon but the second one extended or the first one extended an hour and a half later 
even though the second one was up and people were already bidding on that. Hmm. Because the cool thing about these, they're, they're seven individual pieces of artwork. So each NFT is unique. It's not, it's, it's not like the way LaFleur did it where they had seven NFTs, but the only thing different was the number. The NFT was different and the humidors were identical. Um, in this case, you know, the utility package that comes with the NFT, you have a humidor that's numbered one through seven. Then you have a cutter that matches the artwork for that particular NFT. And then you have a, a, a line two DuPont lighter that matches that artwork. And you have a crystal ashtray that matches that or and a, and a big frame piece of artwork. So it's, it's a good utility package that goes along with the right to be able to get 60 boxes a year of this NFT or this the NFT cigar. Did he release but, uh, the name of the artist? Cause I know he was keeping it. Abe did. Abe did on a, on a podcast. It, it was an artist he's been working with for years and he's a local guy out of West Palm, I think, or Boynton. And uh, this guy created, you know, seven unique pieces of art. Uh, my favorite is actually the next one that's going up, which is number three. No, or is it number four? It's called The Hand. I think it's either number three or number four. And it looks like, uh, what was that serial killer show on HBO? Dexter? Dexter. Oh, it, it, yeah. looks like, it looks like a Dexter logo for some reason. I just like it. Um, but uh, I, I think that might be the next one that's coming up. But it's, I don't get the NFT thing. I still don't get it. Like, I mean, I bid on stocks, but, you know, this is kind of a long play for a lot of people. They look at it as probably like a an investment and uh, they'll get they'll get more than their money back over a long period of time because ultimately they'll have access to, to these cigars, you know, forever. And even my wife questioned me. She goes, how long does it go for like 10 years? I go, no, forever. And she goes, well, what happens if you die? I go, well, then the kids get to take it over. But mm. so when, when Tatawai doesn't exist anymore, I know I can at least sell 6,300 cigars uh, through this, through this NFT package every year. Nice. So. Interesting. And the other big news, uh, your new release this year, 2023, happens to mark your 20th anniversary in the business. And celebrating that, you came out with your 20th line. And uh, tell us about that, Pete. Well, the 20th anniversary also marks my 30th year actually in the business. Hmm. Uh, but the twentieth year having my my own cigar brand, mm. I did two I did two twenty year anniversary cigars out of Nicaragua. They're labeled uh, twenty Esteli, and uh, they're actually reduxes of cigars I did ten years ago. Mm. So there are two sizes that I had done. One both were limited editions in small batch that I did for one the TAA and then also for for a place called. Uh, Silo cigars in uh, in Tennessee, so those are two reduxes of that, and then the twentieth Miami stuff that I'm doing probably won't show up until my twenty second anniversary. <laughs> there's a uh -huh. there's two parts to the whole Miami thing. One, 
I like to uh, I like to age cigars for a long time in Miami. And then two, the packaging is is still not complete, and I I need to make sure that the packaging is like dead on before I release it. Because they're paint the inside of the box, are you? No, no, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, that 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 will never happen again. No, these are these are ceramic jars. Oh, nice. Ooh, but it's really yeah. about making sure that the jars are perfectly shaped and also. I'm trying to invent this uh, insert that goes in the jar that will hold the bundle of cigars mm. as opposed to the way the Cubans do it, where they just shove the cigars right. in the jar naked. I want to make sure that there's a, a bundle that goes inside this sleeve that sits inside the jar. Um, that way they don't rattle around because if you look at the way the jar is shaped, it kind of, kind of has like a, like a little concave on the inside. Mm, so yeah. if the cigars are in there, they might fan out at the bottom and I don't want things breaking. The okay. bundle will work by itself, but I, I want to add that cedar element. And this is going to be a regular production part of your Tatuaje line, right? Your portfolio. Yeah. The jars will be a limited batch. Uh, and then the, the cigars will end up coming in boxes after that. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, the, the jars are the jars are a work in progress, but uh, they're also a lot of weight and uh, they take up a lot of space. So I, I I chose to do a smaller amount of those. <laughs> the last time I did jars was in two thousand. Wow, two thousand. The first jar I did was in two thousand seven, mm. and I made a thousand of them. And the factory shipped me all the cigars. All the jars were in Los Angeles. The factory shipped me all the cigars in bundles, already wrapped the way they're supposed to go in the jar. And all we did was we we placed every bundle in every jar in my office gotcha. on Sunset Boulevard. Gotcha. So you're in the same spot. You're in the exact no. same spot. No, I moved. Uh, I moved in 2011. The building that I was in actually caught fire years later, and then now there's like these giant like work, live apartment, uh, you know, retail on the bottom apartments okay. up top that are being finished right now. I just drove by it last week, kind of reminiscing. I was in the neighborhood. So I figured I'd drive by to see if, if it was still a vacant lot. And mm-hmm. now they built, they built these two massive buildings. Hmm. Cause but my, now- my office was kitty corner to, to a guitar center. If you know, mm-hmm. sunset strip. Yeah. The Walmart. Yeah. Positions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You said earlier that you don't or prefer not to be in front of the camera, but seems with what you do for a living, you're in front of the camera all the time. Uh, all the time. Yeah. Do you, can I ask you about a little movie that you were in uh, about four years yeah. ago? Yeah, I actually was the executive producer of that movie. <laughs> and um, yeah, I actually, I actually told the guys that uh, Jesse and Steve, the, the directors and writers of the film, and also producers. Uh, I told them like in the beginning, because I watched, I watched like a four and a half hour version of it. (laughs) And I kept on saying, can you, can you not use me so much? Like, can you cut me out here and there? And they're like, no, like the shit you say actually leads into a lot of the stories because you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting interviews that they had, but there, there were some interviews that got cut on the floor because 
the the interviewee wasn't that good and they they didn't answer <laughs> any good questions sure and ultimately they're like yeah but what you said actually leads into all this other stuff that they're going to talk about so we kind of need your your piece because no one else said it like you did and i was kind of reluctant about it and then of course when they said well we're going to make you executive producer because i you know an executive producer a real executive producer is supposed to go out and find money right you, you know? just put the money up <laughs> i just put the money up yeah. And I, I thought I had enough control to cut myself out, but they, they said no. I so, guess not. So no, uh, I, I'm just shocked because uh, at the PCA trade show, they actually played the movie there. Or no, it was the new series, right? Oh, yeah. That, the, what they played this year at the PCA was uh, the J.C. Newman uh, that, yeah. part of the docuseries. What they want to do is they want to they film a bunch of individual companies and do like a, you know, 35 to 40 minute episode on each company. Um, reluctantly, the next one that you'll see will be about me. <laughs> oh, gee. I've already told them that I, I it's going to be the unauthorized version. <laughs> <laughs> how, how is that being distributed to the public? Hmm. The Jason Newman one is not out yet because they're still tweaking a few things. Okay. Um, I think uh, maybe maybe there was some like um, B-roll footage that that uh, the Newmans wanted to use, and then eventually it'll be on YouTube. Okay, and oh, that's cool. that's ultimately what when Jesse and Steve came to me. It was last year, actually. They said, uh, you know, the film's five years old, and uh, oh, we're thinking about flies. we're thinking about putting it up on YouTube for free. I go absolutely more more people need to see it now it has over 200,000 views um i haven't looked lately but it was over 200,000 i did see that on youtube uh, i was an early adapter uh i i bought it on apple movies or apple yeah what, yeah well, so did i i bought mm-hmm. it i bought it on apple yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. like and i still have it and every once in a while when i have nothing else going on i'll play it in the background and i'll just listen to it you know cuz it's yeah there's some things that are that are timeless and there's some things that are you know dated <laughs> um, you know but honestly i i think they did a good job when I, when they came to me and asked me at the trade show um that one year when they were they were kind of wandering around the trade show and they were afraid to come in my booth and i saw them kind of sitting outside just you know holding like a flyer or a pamphlet and i walked over and goes you need help and like yeah, we were trying to produce this documentary about the cigar business. I go, I'm interested. I'm interested in, to hear what you have to say. I'm interested to see what you guys have done in the past, and I'm curious to know how you want to do it. And I, I actually gave them a little homework. I said, do me a favor, go home and watch uh, these two documentaries about wine, and uh, come back and tell me what you think about them. One was called Red Obsession, where they got Russell Crowe to be the narrator. It's about mm-hmm. red wine and how the, the Chinese market went crazy for it. And then, uh, especially Bordeaux and Burgundy wines. And then one was called uh, uh, Psalm Into the Bottle. There was Psalm, but Psalm Into the Bottle, where they actually did the storytelling and they actually you actually got to meet the winemakers and, they, and the winemakers were telling stories about their family history and stuff. I go, if you guys can produce something like this, I'll be in. 
And they responded with, yeah, we, we did. And I said, chef's table. I said, I love chef's table. And I think it has to have that vibe. And they came back and they said, uh, we watched uh, the documentaries you talked about. Like, and they said straight up, like, we can do better. I'm like, okay. So I, I gave them a, a small check and they started and they would send me, they would send me like rolls. And I was like, okay, here's another check. And then they said, they, they would send me a little bit more. And I'm like, okay, here's another check. And then I got to the point of seeing like that they were doing serious, like cool interviews. And we started getting more and more people to sit down because at first people were like, uh, we don't know who you are. We don't want to be on camera. But like George Padron called me and says, Hey, uh, do you know these guys? I said, yeah, we're actually filming someone at the Garcia's facility now. And it happened not to be the Garcia. It was with Berta Bravo. Um, and it's legit. We're, we're trying to produce this documentary, like basically a good commercial for the cigar industry. Yeah. And um, he goes, I have time tomorrow. And they went over and sat down with George all day. And George, like, had a good time filming with him. And the next day we were filming Berta. Actually, th that was it. The next day we were filming Berta. And mm -hmm. George called and said, Hey, can you come down? I got my dad to sit down for you. Oh, yeah, wow. That was special. So was that was really though? cool because, uh, you know, it was, it was probably his last interview. Yeah. And uh, it was just cool that, that people had started to embrace it. And then, you know, Carlito, of course, filmed for it and Rocky. And, and eventually there were a few people that said, Yeah, we can't, we can't be in it because there's too many internal politics in the cigar industry. And, uh, you know, someone said this about this and we don't want to be involved with that. And we're like, whatever, just cut them out. Right. You know, cut it, cut it room floor. I think, I think Marvin Schengen was their toughest interview because <laughs> they finally, Marvin finally agreed to be on film and he met Jesse and Steve. I wasn't there that day, but he met Jesse and Steve. He goes, so you're the two kids that have been, like are, are my biggest pain in the ass. And uh, he goes, you know, he goes, I don't do interviews and this might be my second or third interview I've ever done. And uh, I said, you need to have, you need to have Marvin because yeah, he's, yeah. he's kind of that guy that started the boom. Yeah, he did. And, you know, that cigar aficionado magazine, as much as some people love or hate it, it's still the only one that people care when it comes to the top 25. That's true. Oh yeah. And he can you know, ultimately make a brand. I, I, I thank cigar aficionado every day because ultimately they embraced my brand early on and, and gave me a lot of, you know, what I could like to call free press even way before I advertised. Right. Oh yeah. There the magazine is very influential. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's done magic with things like Wine Spectator, and it, it, you know, it becomes an industry standard in pretty much every industry he's in. I mean, look at Whiskey Advocate. He saw this Whiskey Advocate uh, magazine out there, and he said that I got to have that, and he took it over. Um, he also had a thing called, I think, Market mm -hmm. Watch. So he's he's always been ahead of a lot of things. Uh, the cigar thing, no one, you know, Carlito called him crazy. You know, even Carlos Sr. said that it would last one issue. You know, and look at it now. It's right. it's 30 years old. 
Well, that so, one issue is what hooked me. I'll be honest. That's that's exactly that's how oh, I remember that my issue? entry into the into the cigar world. I mean, I just started smoking. It just happened the exact same time that first issue came out. And I am, I tell this story often. I, I went to a bookstore and I bought every book there was about cigars because I wanted to learn everything there was. And on the way out, there's a, you know, like a stand with all their news, their magazines. And I see this magazine says cigar, big letters. And I go, what? They got magazines about cigars. So I grabbed that issue. I bought it. And I say to this day, it's the only magazine that I've ever, you know, uh, read cover to cover. And I was hooked. It got me into the whole lifestyle. It got me to fall in love with cigars. And it, it started my journey in the cigar business. So I'll always be thankful for that. You know, the, the editorial in the beginning of the first magazine, though, was one that kind of upset me a little bit because it was it was one of those things that uh, said, this magazine is for the guy who makes X amount a year and drives a BMW or a Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's not me. Like, I, I I wasn't making money like that. Sorry, I'm trying to get my other earbud in so I can change ears. But, but the way I saw it, Pete, is that for the person that can't drive those, you know, at the time, you know, $200,000 cars, not million-dollar cars, $200,000 yeah. cars and live in multi-million-dollar homes, they could still enjoy the same cigar that those people you know, enjoy exactly. it. so it, it yeah. got everybody involved. So that's, I think was the draw and, you know, with the whole luxury element of it and, and people said, Hey, I want to be a part of it. And the cigar helped them feel like they were a part of it. If nothing more, you know, so well, Nick, was- Nick, the, 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 the funny thing you say that is that I got into smoking cigars in the, like, like 1991. And okay. I started smoking cigars on stage just because I, I I went down this thing, like I'm like, I was obsessed with these rolled up pieces of dry leaves. Right. Mm. And, uh, but I got into the cigar smoking thing because I was watching like, I don't know, one of these entertainment tonight shows or whatever. Right. And I saw all these people dressed up all super fancy smoking cigars. And it looked like they were having a great time. Like at a charity <laughs> function. I go, right that looks pretty relaxing. I want to try a cigar. And I went to a liquor store, bought a cheap cigar. And ultimately I spent like a half hour sitting there just, you know, doing nothing but smoking this cigar going, this is kind of peaceful. I didn't realize that you couldn't save it overnight and go back to it the (laughs) next day (laughs) because I did that. Yeah. I had a similar uh, experience. It but was it was the same so thing to me. It was so like there's like this community that I would love to hang out with people and just talk about cigars. And I met some of my best friends in the world over a cigar. Did and it was all Did all because we 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 had one thing in common, but the other things we did in our lives, we had nothing in common. And that we was learned great. that we liked the same things. Yeah. But I was hanging out with movie directors, actors, real estate you know, tycoons, lawyers, you know, big, big time CPAs. And I was this kid that just knew all about cigars more than they did. So they liked me being around. And and I don't know if you actually toured when you were in a band, but I remember you did a few years back where you had yeah. the tour bus, you know, the Tatawai tour bus and you toured the country and you guys were sleeping in the, in the bus. And, oh yeah. And that was, that was pretty cool too. I, I ended up seeing, I think it was in Austin. And that was uh, a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. But uh, 
you know, my idea of a tour when we were younger, you know, touring as a, as a, an up and coming band, we used to rent like a, you know, a, a panel van, you know, one of those right, big right, vans right. that have no windows yeah, and load all our gear up and I would sleep on top of an amp, you know, yeah. at least I That's had a mo- bunk on the tour bus. There you go. There you go. Well, Pete, um, it's kind of coming to a close. I don't want to take any more of your time. I was always, one of the things that I did was, you know, nothing, taking nothing away from all these other podcasts that are out there, but some of these things go on for hours and hours and it's interesting, but I I was trying to get something a little bit more concise, just get the information out, be interesting, but like not take all night, you know, so, cause I could never recommend this stuff to my friends. Hey, watch this. Like, I don't have three hours to watch this. What are you talking about? My friends would be like, you know, some that were diehard cigar guys will watch every minute of it, but I was trying to keep it concise. So wrapping this well, up, Pete, um, real quick though, you have one thing yeah. going for you. You're a great conversationalist. Oh, thank you. You can sit down with anybody and have a, a great low tone conversation. And right. it's actually, it's easy to talk with you. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I just, uh, you know, I, I have a general, you know, passion for this business and for this magic leaf. And, you know, we've talked about on this show countless times that, you know, all our best friends, whether we like it or not, have to smoke cigars or, we're, you know, I, I lost a lot of good friends because they don't smoke cigars because that's pretty much all I do, you know. Uh, right. So when they when the worlds collide, it's a wonderful thing. So I'm always trying to preach the gospel according to the dried leaves that we burn uh, on a regular basis and uh, enjoy life. I think it's one of the best things in life. And, and the other big catchphrase we use, it's the great equalizer. You spoke about CEOs, directors, and you can have, uh, you know, janitors and we all can sit together in the same circle and enjoy a cigar and just enjoy life and, and the camaraderie and, and the companionship. I think it's a wonderful business and, I plan on being in it forever and I know you are as well. So, you know, thank you, Pete, for everything you've done for this industry, for all thank your you. hard work and your, your diligence and uh, you keep fighting the fight. You, you know, you're so multifaceted. You really are the, one of the top, you know, ambassadors to this business a, as a whole. You're like the new blood, so to speak, but yeah. listen, you've taken the, the mantle and uh, I hope you have many, many good successful years to go and tell people, Anything else about where they can find your cigars? Pretty much every cigar shop. I It's one thing I can say. You can find Tatuahai just about anywhere. And um, sometimes they're not in stock because, you know, your 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 supply is limited. Uh, yeah. You make great stuff. And, uh, you know, if anybody hasn't smoked a Tatuahai or one of Pete's uh, masterful creations with the, with the Pepin family, please uh, do yourself a very, very special, special honor and smoke one of Tatuahai's great cigars. Thank you, Nick. Anything thank else you. you want to say, Pete? Close no, I mean, yeah, I just want to thank you for having me on, and thanks for the good conversation. Hey, thanks for coming. I thanks appreciate for, it. Thanks for getting me to talk. <laughs> yeah, man, I love I love talking. At least, you know, we've been friends for a number of years, but, you know, our paths go different now. ways. And, you know, this is at least I got to spend an hour with you here and uh, get to chat with you and let everybody else listen in. And uh, so thank you again for, for coming on and hope to have you again on the show real soon. Appreciate it. So, Thanks, Tim. Also, so for myself, uh, this is where I don't have the experience, you know, the James experience. For Simply Stogies, uh, I'm Nick Cirrus, and that's Tim Allen. 
And we had the honor of having Pete Johnson of Tatawahe. Thank you for listening and go smoke Tatawahe cigars. Don't forget to check in two weeks where we do clear the air. We're going to talk about Pete. Oh, that's right. Don't forget. That's your, that's your little secret sauce. We get to talk about Pete. <laughs> it's not even back. behind his back. Cause anybody you can, you can, <laughs> well, go watch it. it sounds, it sounds cool when you say behind his back. So, you know, we're talking. I can't wait. Back, Pete. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Thanks, Take guys. Take care, everybody. Bye. Appreciate it.